0: Ladies and germs, we welcome you to our Halloween version, our Marvelous Magical Monster Mystery Tour edition, as it were, of the Comic Book Historian Podcast. I'm your ghastly host, Bill
1: Field, with
0: Alex the Alien Grand. Hello, Alex. Bill, what's going on? Hey, buddy. And Jim the Giant Killer Thompson. Jimmy, how you doing, buddy? Boo, everybody. Boo! Boo! You scared me. Now folks, we want to take you back to a day when you could not bring out certain monsters in comics. And why? Because of the ghastly, I use ghastly again, Frederick Wortham. Now, we all know that guy wreaked havoc on comics like nothing else. Basically, for years, you couldn't use monsters in the same context. They had to be robots or have some kind of backstory that took them out of Wortham's Wrath, as it were, with the Comics Code Authority. Fast forward to 1969. Not the Summer of Love, but the Summer of Monsters and Horror, as far as Marvel's concerned. And why is this, Jim? Because they want to compete with DC. Because DC
2: in 68, as we learned last week, was Joe Orlando had come aboard and they were hot. DC was hot in terms of of moving forward on, on horror. And Marvel wanted to compete with it, and they had the talent to compete with it like crazy. They had Neil Adams, they had Jim Steranko, they had Barry Smith. They were primed and ready to go after everybody.
1: And it failed. Now, we have the two magazines, or the two comics, Tower of Shadows, Chamber of Darkness. They came out at the end of 1969, and they were trying to compete, like Jim said, with their horror anthology books, but they were lackluster. they didn 't quite work out.
2: Well, they weren't lackluster in terms of
1: talent. they were lackluster in terms of sales. So why do you guys think with all that great talent, why were there low sales? Because people were
0: going to marvel for heroes. they weren't going yeah. to marvel for anything else, and they had the best horrors I and mean, horrors heroes and comics. and so as a result, it was really hard for them to transition. And such. Remember, you didn't have only DC. You also had a lot of horror stuff coming out of Charlton, and an awful lot of horror stuff coming out of Warren. So that was that kind of made Marvel go into the black and white industry, which is something we're going to touch on today. Now, around the same time, a little later in seventy one.
1: So that's a good point. So basically what you guys are saying is in the 60s, Stan and Jack and Ditko and then the later guys like Bushima and Trampy and whoever made such a big smash in the superhero world with all these new characters that the fans were already just kind of geared toward heroes, whereas the fans that probably were into horror anthologies, they are already shopping with other companies. So it hard to, that was a tough nut for them to crack.
0: That's right. Because they were going beyond the brand or they were going outside of what their brand had been comfortable with and people didn't want to buy a horror title with Marvel uh brand on it. And and Bill, that's a perfect segue into the first time they
2: try, which is because they have to get outside the code and they do they do Savage Tales in May nineteen seventy one and it fails. They don't do a second issue until October seventy three, two years later. It's not a success.
1: As far as the Comics Code freeing up its restrictions and allowing to use more classic monsters, why did the Comics Code suddenly allow this in 1970-71? Why did that happen?
0: I don't know, personally. All I know is
1: the restrictions were
0: lightening because DC was putting pressure on them in a lot of ways because they were taking exception to almost everything And they were having to change so many stories at D.C. that it was was having a financial backlash in a certain uh, sense. So the funny and ironic thing about this is that served Marvel very well. Because as we all know, Marvel took up the idea of giving these monsters their own individual books instead of being in an anthology format, which had failed horribly for them a couple years before. And I believe if they hadn't had that failure, they wouldn't have the success of all the Tomb of Dracula, Son of Satan.
1: So when we say Marvel, we're talking Roy Thomas and him wanting to bring dark stories and horror pulp into Marvel and visualize the stuff that he was reading when he was a kid. Some of his earlier attempts to bring those kind of characters into the comics I remember in the 60s, in the X-Men, when there was this whole Factor 3 evil guys that were against the X-Men. Who's the head of Factor 3? Factor 3 was a thing that went on for so long. And then at the end, it was some octopus-headed alien, almost like a pulp Cthulhu monster type creature. So you could see these little elements. And then even with the Submariner, Roy Thomas has the Serpent Crown Saga, which is almost like pulp horror, serpentine, monster, evil, ancient creatures. So we're seeing these elements that Roy Thomas is bringing, and it seemed like he really wanted to bring that into the forefront and make a whole section of Marvel devoted to this. What do you guys think about that?
2: Let's not pretend that Marvel isn't its very foundation as Marvel isn't based on horror. Because the first few issues of Fantastic Four and everything that preceded it with Kirby and Ditko's books were all monster books. So I mean, Marvel has a foundation for it. They just buried it during the the 60s into a, a more of a science fiction adventure hero thing. And then it was it, it was in the uh, 70s that early uh, 70 71 that the horror starts to sneak back in, and then just becomes takes over to the point that the 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 heroes are almost squeezed out.
0: Yes, but everyone forgets that the Hulk was actually a Frankenstein Jekyll and Hyde.
1: redo or remix. and that's what I'm saying. He was the monster of Marvel. He also had a bit of the werewolf flavor to him by turning to a monster when the sun came down. So he was a fusion of three horror characters.
0: And look at the Thing. Oh, my God, the Thing was nothing but a monster. Yeah. I I mean, he he was... uh, There was a movie, actually, that came out before the Fantastic Four that the guy looked just like the Thing... And, it, and he's wearing a trench coat. I can't remember remember the name of it right off the top of my head, but I'll, I'll go back and look it up. But uh it was almost a precursor to it. And we all know that Kirby was a huge fan of movies, went to movies constantly. And that's why he had so many series that never got off the ground that were horror-based or, you know, in that vein. He even wanted to do the Planet of the Apes comic before uh Marvel did. And, uh, DC did not get the license and it went to Marvel.
2: But the difference is all of these, and this is, I think, the the key, you weren't under the comics code, you couldn't do supernatural horror. These were all, these were all science fiction based horrors. They were all done by science gone wrong. And that changes really significantly in, in the, in that 71-72 period, which is why I wanted to talk about this because Suddenly, we're allowed to have real vampires and real vam- and and real werewolves, and not just the living vampire of Morbius or the man wolf or whatever those characters that were introduced. We had we got to have ones that are based upon supernatural forces, and that's a change. And that's because the code becomes weaker.
1: Absolutely. And what's interesting is the comics code kind of limits the topics where sci-fi is fair game, superheroes are fair game, romance to some extent is fair game, but supernatural was off-limits, and murder was off-limits. So it turns into a more sterile environment, so for them to loosen up and allow these monsters is a bit like opening the floodgate a little bit.
0: I want to make a point. Murder was not excluded.
1: There just had to be a consequence.
0: Yes, it had to be a consequence, and that was a major part of the comics code, was there had to be a cause and effect. You know, it had to be present.
1: And they couldn't actually show the murder happening. Like, they had to show a shadow, or it happened in the other room. But you can't see the knife going into their head or something.
0: Right, right. And, Jim, how did it ease up on monsters and the super, or the supernatural?
2: Well, the... The the story goes, and I don't know if it's true or not, that it was partly because they wouldn't give a seal on a story because
1: it was written by Marv Wolfman.
2: (laughs) Have you ever heard
0: this?
1: Yeah, I heard that. I've heard that.
0: Oh, I've never heard that.
1: It says Wolfman.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Halloween special, folks.
0: Go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> but
2: However, it happened. It, it happened by the fall of 71. Things were looser and they you were allowed to. And with Spider-Man, Roy Thomas, in the very first issue that Stan Lee wasn't the writer on, and I don't think people realize this, Amazing Spider-Man 101 was the very first issue not written by Stan Lee. And in that issue, Morbius is introduced. And they toyed with the notion of actually bringing in Dracula with that issue, and decided no, we want to have a science, still keep a science based, more superheroish villain than actually introduce Dracula, and so that's how Morbius, the living vampire,
1: became the first vampire in the modern Marvel universe. And again, that's a creation of Roy Thomas and his close friend at the time, Gil Kane, and Stan Lee. Yeah, it kind of Stan Lee, but really, the credits for Morbius go to Roy Thomas and Gil Kane, though. And as far as Roy Thomas and Gil Kane, they created quite a few things together at this time. With Roy pushing all these horror-type characters and plotting and creating all these characters, you have him at Marvel almost rewriting some of Marvel, like the code at Marvel, while Carmine Infantino is off at DC, who in a couple years into rewriting the code at DC, to modernize it, and what's interesting is you have Gil Kane leaving Carmine to go to Roy, and they do some cool things together, and Michael Morbius is one of them.
0: Well, and not only that, but Morbius was a unique take, and I'm going to put myself out on a limb here, but I totally believe that Morbius will probably get his own uh, Netflix series at some point, because he's too too cool of a character not to exploit. What a great character he was. You have to remember, this was during the era where Dracula was being re-explored by Hammer Films with their version, and then you had Blackula just a couple years later, and then you had Blade on top of that. And they were all blood-related stories to vampires. But then you have Michael Morbius, who was actually a blood doctor, a uh, Dr. Uplet and experimented on himself, and made himself a living vampire.
1: Now, from my awareness of hematologists in general, I don't see any of them drinking their own blood, or drinking bat blood, or whatever, but I like that as an idea for a story.
2: So, once he comes in an Amazing Spider-Man, and then he also pops up in another Gil Kane story in Marvel Team-Up, he gets his own, he basically takes over Vampire Tales and runs with Don McGregor writing, and various artists, including uh, Tom Sutton, most of all, doing a series in that, in black and white, which is very different in tone from the Michael Morbius in Spider-Man. After Man-Thing finishes his run in Adventure into Fear and gets his own title, Morbius takes over the the title Adventure into Fear. with issue 20 in, in 1974, and it runs through the end of 1975, That's a really bizarre take on Morbius, which is very science fiction-based, with Frank Robbins doing the art, and that's a standout, too. It's either loved or hated by a lot of fans.
0: Hated by me. I could not stand Frank's work. Even now, it's never rubbed off on me. I hate to say that, but Kirby's 70s work really has rubbed off on me over the years, and I love it, but as a kid, I hated it, and I hated Robbins, and I, I... Wish I didn't, because I loved all of the stories they told in The Invaders.
1: It's funny when you guys mention Frank Robbins, because he was clearly inspired by Milton Kniff, and his style was more like Milton Kniff's later work, or rather his latter part of his run on *Terry and the Pirates, where the faces kind of changed into that cartoony, rectangular shape. And Frank Robbins took that to this slightly more extreme, and then applying that to superheroes... And that genre just kind of rubbed me weird. I've never liked it, although I like that style for non-superhero genres like Terry and the Pirates or Steve Canyon or Frank Robbins' own strip stuff. But to apply that to the superhero genre for some reason seems a weird fit for me. I have a hard time enjoying it. I don't really like the Frank Robbins superhero stuff. Something I see as a theme is that it seems like in 1972, the floodgates open on the monster characters, and my making sense of that has to do with Martin Goodman. He had sold Marvel in 68, and he left as publisher in 72, so Perfect Film makes Lee publisher in 72, and then he, in a roundabout way, but it ends up with Roy Thomas becoming the new editor-in-chief, So with Roy having control over the entire line, he starts plotting like crazy, creating a whole bunch of monster characters.
2: That's what opens up in 73, the the black and whites, this time successfully, because Goodman was against Savage Tales. He didn't want to do it. He didn't think it was a good move for Marvel to go into non-code books. So he was opposed to that. And so when he was out, that's when those really launched into trying to basically crowd out the newsstands and take over from Warren because they were publishing so many more books than Warren ever could do. They only did three, you know, a couple other side books. But Marvel had, like, tons of them, Planet of the Apes, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. They were doing,
1: in addition to the horrors, they had, like, an awful lot of books out on the stands. So, that being said, even before 73, you have Roy Thomas plotting Werewolf by Night in 1972, Tomb of Dracula in 1972, he plots Ghost Rider in 1972, and he plots Ghost Rider with Gary Friedrich, who did Hell Rider in 1971 for Skywald Magazines. Did you guys know that Roy Thomas wanted that costume to match the 1968 Elvis comeback special? Are you freaking kidding me? I'm not kidding. That's a real quote.
0: Never heard that. That's awesome, and it makes perfect sense.
1: Yeah, that whole leather outfit, that's from the 1968 comeback special. That's why he just looks so cool. Roy Thomas wanted that flair in him. He wanted him to be this Elvis stunt motorcyclist combination, and it's fantastic. And to mix that with the antihero and then monster genre, I think that's awesome. I think... When you combine various genres, things come out better. Things come out more fun. There's also another cool thing is we talked about Gary Friedrich, how he had done Hell Rider in nineteen seventy one. That was for Skywald magazine and Skywald, I don't know if you guys know but the Sky in the name Wald was from Saul Brodsky. And Saul Brodsky had left Marvel to start publishing on his own. Skywald went out of business, and part of the reason why is because maybe it was Stan Lee or Roy Thomas. Probably Stan wanted to flood the stands with as much product as possible at this time to just flood out the competition, just destroy the competition. So I find that interesting that that would occur between Stan Lee and Saul Brodsky in this indirect manner find that that's interesting. And I might be dramatizing it, but this idea like, ah, he left me, huh? Well, I'm about to destroy his magazine. (laughs) I just find that that's fun.
0: Here's the funny side of that. Saw Broxy's son was so upset by this that he went and started his own line of comics, which were the freaking worst of all time. He took on 15, at least, different Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle wannabes, and so much more, they were the worst comics ever. When he was convinced he was going to take over the market and prove to Stan Lee that he should have never hurt his dad with the swamp of titles. Do you remember that stuff, Jim? It was god-awful. It was horrible. It was just horrible. It was the worst. And it's like, I don't know where you got the money from to produce so much crap, but it was part of what started the glut of 1987, and, oh, my God, it was, it was horrible.
1: It's just kinda cool that as soon as the comics code changes, Roy Thomas becomes editor-in-chief, you just have a whole bunch of characters. He also created Damon Hellstrom and Satana, both in 1973, but still, it's just, it's just huge Roy Thomas explosion of monster characters. It's pretty huge. It's pretty significant.
2: It starts in 72 with Werewolf by Night. That's the first classic monster. That gets its place in there, but not a science-based monster, but a, uh, a, a monster. Uh, Marvel Spotlight number two, February 72. Uh, Thomas Conway is writing most of these,
1: not Thomas. Thomas creates and plots, and then Conway scripts a lot of these things. Yeah, Conway is scripting them. Uh, th- what stands out with
2: Werewolf by Night in terms of Marvel's horror is it's the first one drawn by uh, Mike Klug who creates, uh, who's the guy. I mean, he's the guy that creates uh, the visual look of, of Ghost Rider. He's the guy that makes Man-Thing tick like nobody else did, along with Steve Gerber writing. But so Mike Klug's first moment there is on Werewolf by Night, and that's where it really takes off.
1: Now, one thing I wanted to throw in, we had said that Roy Thomas' first classic monster was Werewolf by Night in 1972. I'm going to use a bill line and say I take exception to that, where his first one that I'm aware of was when he used Frankenstein as a robot in X-Men 40 1968. You remember that? That's a robot, Alex. Well, that's how they got around the
0: code. He's saying that. and, and I...
1: <laughs> Oh, this is funny. But
0: uh no. So Tomb of Dracula came after Werewolf by Night? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah. Tomb of Dracula came after.
0: April seventy
2: two. Dracula, which is in public domain, so they get to use that like crazy. And again, Conway initial scripting. But that was a that was a mess for the first half year. Conway, Thomas, Goodwin, Fox all having issues. And then with issue seven, Marv Wolfman takes over. And again, just like I said with Mike Pluke, it just takes off. Colin was there from the very beginning, but with that Marvin Wolfman,
1: uh, Marv Wolfman Colin team, uh, that was golden. That was golden. That's where it really takes off.
2: That's a highlight, isn't it?
1: Of, of all well, the
2: Marvel Horror well, stuff.
1: Wolfman and then you have Colin, and then you have Palmer as an inker, that full triangle really cuts in. And for people who out there who don't know the importance of a good inker, check out the Vince Coletta and Gene Colin Dracula issues. There's a couple of them. And then compare that to the Gene Colin Tom Palmer. And it's like looking at a children's crayon book and then a masterpiece painting. It's really that different.
2: Now, I, I want to speak up for the, uh, the Gil Kane covers in the first half of that run too. Those are, those are beautiful, beautiful covers. Because he's, he's not doing a Bela Lugosi Dracula. He's not doing a Hammer Dracula. He's doing Jack Palance as Dracula. And those covers are just awesome.
0: Or uh, he's doing a white Dracula Because I've always thought the Tomb of Dracula Dracula looked like a white bela- Blacula. Honestly, he looks like what they were doing with Blackula with the makeup, but he's he's Caucasian. I'm serious. Sure. If you go back and look, many people missed this, but a lot. I, of I missed it, Bill. Well, no, if you've ever seen Blackula or Scream, Blackula Scream, two of my favorites. They both have, and he went on to be King of Cartoons in uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse. The same actor, great actor though. But that what they did was at Marvel. They literally lifted the look of Blackula and made him Caucasian. Gil Kane
2: says it's Jack so Palance, but maybe well, maybe Blackula was
1: based upon doing a black version of Jack Palance. Or no, a white black version, uh, a white black version of Jack Palance. Like, you black it up and then whiten it up again, and you keep a little aftertaste of what you had. Genius. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I want to go back to one thing real quick, because since I'm the animation guy of the group, I want to say that Mike Plug went on to become one of the best storyboard artists for animation after this period. And he co-created Wizards with uh, Ralph Bakshi in 1976, which was a really, you know, breakthrough movie in a lot of ways for both animation and comics, I, I really think Ploog got a real great start at Marvel, because he was, he was given all these wonderful assignments that were all classic monsters, and then he took that into animation with Wizards and made something that I still think is one of the greatest animation uh, achievements of all time. So we should thank Jim Shooter for this, right? How so?
2: Because he's the one that drove uh, Plug and virtually everybody else out of Marvel. Pluck would
0: have been very happy to stay at Marvel, except
2: that uh, uh, he left because of Shooter.
0: Wow. That's amazing. And Shooter, of course, the 13-year-old writer genius of Legion of Superheroes, which <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. is funny, okay. isn't it? I mean, when I was 13, I, I couldn't have, I mean, I tried to write comics, but I really do think Shooter petered out around age 16, and then he became a giant, that nobody could endure, and Marvel was really, it came to a level where it was a dynamo as far as sales, but then, you know, everything just crumbled, and nobody even talks about Jim Shooter anymore. Oh, they they certainly do on their
1: website. I can't blame Jim Shooter for... And this is a different conversation, but I can't blame Jim Shooter for the crap that happened under Marvel when Pearlman bought it and just jacked up everything. I don't blame Shooter for what Pearlman did in the late 80s and early 90s. Wasn't Shooter gone? Shooter was totally gone. Yeah, Shooter left in 87. And so you have Tom DeFalco being the editor-in-chief, and then you have Perlman who was maxing out the Marvel credit card, so to speak, and smashing out, saying, hey, get more event comics, get more event comics, and get variant covers, whatever, who cares, it's making cash now, it's great for the stockholders, and then he just broke that golden egg's ass in half, he twisted that thing in half, and I don't think that's Jim Shooter's fault, and a lot of people who hate Shooter will try to blame him for everything wrong at Marvel, I think that's wrong.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I agree. I I think Shooter brought in some great talents and and produced some really good books, but there was a tremendous exodus during his run at some point where a lot of awfully creative people left and they attributed it to because of uh that
1: they just couldn't stand him. And, and Plug was one of those. And going back to the 70s, a lot of those 70s guys left because a Shooter, and that's totally true. I will also say, though, that there's various ways of looking at that. Me, I'm an 80s kid, obviously. So I love the 70s stuff in retrospect, reading it as an adult, but as a kid I bonded to the 80s, and I look at it like the way Carmine Infantino, when he became editorial director at DC, he kind of cleared out a lot of the old guys and brought in new guys like Neil Adams, Bernie Wrightson, and whoever... Then you have Jim Shooter who kind of got rid of the old guys and brings in the new guys. And so you have people like Chris Claremont being more front and center. You have Dave Cochran being more front and center. You have John Byrne being more front and center. And you have Frank Miller front and center. You have all these people coming in front and center that really hit comics pretty hard. And, yeah, they took comics in a whole nother direction, into the dark direction. But as a kid in the 80s, I loved it, and I look at what Carmine did to DC in the late 60s as the same way as what Jim Shooter did to Marvel in 1979, 1978. I look at it as the same issue, but I get it. A lot of it comes down to what did you bond to? What do you feel the most betrayed by on an emotional level? I understand when people say that. There is also an issue of just getting rid of awesome talent, which the case can be said for that. It's totally different saying, okay, he got rid of Roy Thomas and Gene Colan and, what, like seven other, eight other guys, more than that, and then Carmine Infantino getting rid of Jerry Siegel. Like, that's clearly not the same in that magnitude. But I will say, though, that when an editor-in-chief comes in, they want to, quote-unquote, clean it up, out with the old and in with the new, and that's kind of what new editor-in-chiefs try to do to stay ahead of the curve, and I will say that he was successful at doing that. He became his own worst enemy later on, but he was successful at doing that.
2: So, so bill I, I have a Mike Plug question for you, and in, in order yeah. to give it, i, I got to just do a little bit more chronology, which is uh, after Dracula, we had Marvel Spotlight Number Five come out introducing Ghost Rider for the first time with that incredible Plugue art uh, that's in August yeah. of nineteen seventy two and then um right after that, in September. Um, we have, um, we have, uh, or January 73, rather, uh, Monster of Frankenstein, again, with Mike Plug doing the art in that incredible adaptation for the, like, six issues, or one through five, I think. Frankenstein, Monster of Frankenstein, Alex, you mentioned the X-Men issue, but actually, Frankenstein, in the continuity, had been around at Marvel since September 1953, with issue number uh, menace number seven, same thing as I think the the preceding issue or the the following issue, Simon Garth was was introduced
1: as a zombie in menace number eight, I think. So those what? guys,
2: it went back that far. I didn't yeah. know that.
1: Simon Garth was created by Bill Everett and Stan Lee in 1953. Oh my God! And going back to the Roy Thomas concept, Roy Thomas plucked that character from that old story, and put him into that Tales of the Zombie magazine in 1973 that he co-wrote with Steve Gerber. There's a long history of monsters at Marvel. I will say, I think that in continuity Frankenstein, who's not the robot, was actually in a 1969 Silver Surfer drawn by John Bushima. Yeah,
2: yeah. Was that the real Frankenstein?
1: That was the real one.
2: Oh, okay. All right, that's interesting. I forgot about him. All right like, so my question my question bill, since you brought up yeah. how much you what a Plug fan you are between that adaptation of, of the novel and in, in Frankenstein, those early issues of 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 Ghost Rider done by Plueg, the werewolf by Night issues Marvel Spotlight in the first run of werewolf by Night,
0: or something else, what do you think Plug's strongest work was at Marvel? you know that's hard to, uh, it's hard for me to consolidate because. He was so good in everything, but I honestly think his Johnny Blaze was the thing that made me realize what a talent he was when I was a small 10- or 11-year-old. A wee lad. A wee lad. A wee lad.
2: It was a leather thing for you, even even at 12 or 13? A leather thing? Yeah, yeah, Johnny Blaze. It's all about the leather.
0: Oh, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, it has nothing to do with the leather. I'm not a leather guy.
1: In our very first episode, you said Stan Lee approached you at a convention in the bathroom wearing leather telling you about comics. you remember that? It was a Gimp outfit,
0: actually. And, wait, no, I'm making this, wait, what? No, it's, thank you, Jim, that's hilarious. But, no, I, I want to say something, though, because I, I didn't realize it until I was thinking when we were talking about Frank Robbins. Mike Plug in a lot of ways, drew like Frank Robbins. Except he drew cool Frank Robbins. Because his art was much more cartoony than most of the other Marvel bullpen at the time. And yet, people let it ride because it was so magnificent and so cool and so different. And he got the horror element every time. And that's why Wizards is so wonderful. And it has an awful lot of his, like, stock art, almost... And a lot of the still stuff is in Wizards, because she said he was such a great storyteller that he could set the whole pace of the movie with nothing but Pluge's like, still art. And that's what he did. And that's what Ploog's strengths were. But I really think he stood out in his Ghost Rider stuff more than anything else. I will take exception with that, Bob. Uh, or or okay. Bill. Bill. Bob! Now I'm Bob. Everybody Bob, calls me Bill, kind of, Bob, or Chris. Bob the Leather Gimp, man. B- Billy Bob. <laughs> I'm in Texas, remember. I'm Billy um, Bob now.
2: Man, man thing, in terms of the, co- the, 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 the regular comics, has yeah. to be, that's his, his collaborations with Gerber on that clown two-parter.
0: No, that's ter- really fantastic stuff. I have to say, I, I do agree with that. The Ghost Rider stuff, and, did he not do anything on Son of Satan? No. When? No. He Her, Herb the...
2: Trimpe did that. And then, boy, there's one great story on, on that, and I, I can't think of who the artist is. But that had some interesting art during the, the actual series after it moved out of Spotlight. Spotlight, I think, was all Herb Trimpe.
1: Okay.
0: With Joe Kane was, covers. I think you may be right. But, the, yeah, the covers were all Kane. That's
1: what I'm thinking out of, I think. Okay.
2: But there's another aspect of Plug that I think is really interesting uh, in terms of just his pure art, and that was uh, that was Planet of the Apes. That Terror on the Planet yeah. of the Apes series was, I think, uh, Doug Moins says that's his best work, that they were basically not even inking it. They were taking it directly from his pencils at some point, because he was putting so much into it that you didn't need to ink it. And it's you look at those, and they just did a a trade, a hardcover trade of that. It's beautiful, beautiful
0: work. What's so funny is he had such a sense of Eisner. I don't know if you'll agree with me, but you know how Eisner's more gestural and more cartoony than a lot of other artists? I feel like Ploog took that on in a lot of ways, and that was the strength of his art, and nobody else was doing that. At the it's, time. it's
2: why when uh, Darwin Cook left the Spirit at DC, Plug is the one that replaced him.
0: Did you oh. ever see the the, the Pluge Spirit? No, books? I have not. But I will go go and look now because no, I have not. And that smile on your face makes me feel like I've missed something big. So we see each other on Skype, Paul. I'm in Texas. They're in California. In two different places. Don't give but addresses I, out, Bill. I I will not. But Jim okay. lives at. No, I'm joking. But uh, Plug I'm sure Ploog did a wonderful job on it, because Ploog is very either influence.
2: In June of 73, you have Dracula Lives is the first horror book of the magazine line that comes out. It's followed immediately by Haunt of Horror, and then Monsters Unleashed in July of 73, and then Tales of Zombie in August of 73. Was there a black and white Monsters Unleashed? Oh, yes, a long-running one. This is just another comic book one. This Frankenstein monster headlined this one. But it was black and white. Yeah.
0: I don't remember this. Oh, yeah, that one was great.
2: Yeah, Dracula (laughs) Lives, then Haunt of Horror, then Monsters Unleashed, then Tales of Zombie, which had the Simon Garth by uh, Gerber, and then Vampire Tales, and then Haunt of Horror. Those were the core horror books, and then everything else followed that the other genre books. Didn't all this stuff
0: get cancelled around eighty or was it earlier?
2: Oh, before that, yeah. The only one that had like a longevity to it was Savage Sword of Conan. I mean that lasted forever. Which Uh,
0: that that was Savage Tales, right? No, no. Oh no. Savage Tales
2: Savage Tales didn't last no, Savage Sword of Conan is the one that lasted. Oh okay. I
0: thought for some reason I thought Savage Tales became Savage Sword of Conan.
2: You have the the second tier like all the frontliners were really introduced in, in 72, the very beginning of 73, but the second level comes in 73 with, uh, Brother Voodoo and Santana and Gabriel the Exorcist, uh, Devil Hunter and, and, uh, Golem and the Living Mummy. All this stuff comes in, in 73, uh, to 74. And some of those only appear for three or four issues. Uh, Motored the Mystic was only for two issues. Tigra. Some of these guys become fixtures in the Marvel Universe. They become Avengers, like Tigra does. But she started as giant-sized creatures number one, uh, with her and Werewolf by Night. Brother Voodoo becomes an Avenger, too, as Dr. Voodoo later. But in Strange Tales 169 to 173, uh, he's he's introduced uh, with uh, Lin ween
1: and uh, Gene Colan, doing it as, as Voodoo comics. Something that I find interesting about all these characters is that they're a mixture of supernatural monster genre combined with the antihero genre that was so popular in the early to mid-70s. And I feel like that makes it, again, just really effective. I think that mixing genres is always the best way to make a better product. And I feel like that's probably what sets them ahead of, let's say, in the 60s when Dell was doing Dracula or whatever. It just came off kind of corny and dumb. Not even the superhero one. I'm talking about, like, the first Dracula that they actually looked like Dracula on the cover. And even that didn't come off as well as the Marvel stuff. And I feel it's because... This push toward making these monsters into anti-heroes, I feel like that's that's perfect. With Dell,
0: I think it was because they used subpar talent, because you had Tony Tallarico and a lot of people that really just couldn't draw what the hell. The Dell stuff could have been fantastic, but the creative teams they put on it were horrible.
1: The anthology books that we talked about earlier, the 1969, 1970 ones, they had great talent, but the concept just didn't work out for them. And so I think that what sets the difference is then making them, plotting them, but as antihero figures, and then suddenly it gels at Marvel for some reason. And I feel like that's that's a critical key.
2: Although when we say gel, let's 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 be realistic about it, though most of these. Um, We create a glut, and by 1975, most of these characters are gone, and some of them gone for a good ten years. And to illustrate this, I, I just want to point out that in August 1973, Living Mummy in Supernatural Thrillers premieres, same month, Brother Voodoo in Strange Tales... Um, uh Starting in September of seventy-three, actually, same month, Son of Satan appears for the first time in Ghost Rider. Same month, Satana appears. There's a tremendous glut after the success of the Plug characters and so forth. They're just flooding the market with these guys, and none of them, none of them make it. And did, now, did Brother Voodoo
0: have a black and white? He had a black and white appearance, right?
2: Yeah, he he had
0: had a backup in uh, Tales of Zombie. And that fit perfectly because he was a Zavambi, Nvambi, or what is it? Zavambi? Is it Zvombie. Yeah. Zvombie. That sounds like Jumanji. Zavambi.
1: Sorry. When Stanley and Kirby and Ditko were creating superheroes, they had a lot of crossovers going on. These characters, when they made them in the early '70s, didn't really cross over much, did they?
2: Yeah, yeah. to some
1: degree. There was a Dracula Werewolf by Night crossover. That's true. That did happen, yep. And Dracula Doctor Strange, Dracula Silver Surfer. So those happened.
0: Uh, And Legion of Monsters. Legion of Monsters, hello. Legion of Monsters, they have their own Avengers, you know, but with Monsters. And there was not, it wasn't Legion of Superheroes, which, going back to the Jim Shooter thing, Jim and I are big Matter Eater Lad fans like what who cannot love a character that can eat anything even a bomb
1: that's a really good point because matter eater lad i mean his power was to gag on matter and then deep throat it and it's gone forever oh
0: my god oh my god alex you're a sick
1: we're going to have i'm going to have to bleep that one out bill
0: yes bleep yeah, i know i'm
2: going to get bleep Jim help me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I I just want to say he didn't deep throat anything. I've seen pictures of poles of poles
0: of a girder of a girder yeah. going down, yeah. yeah.
1: Of poles going in and they're not go they're not stopping. They keep going in. Jim, I take exception. I take exception to that. He did swallow though.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what happens is the the intrinsic acids of the people from Bismal, which, yes, Pepto-Bismal, yes, that's the planet he came from, Bismal. And, and yeah, Jim Shooter, man, for a 13-year-old, he came up with some crazy
1: stuff. But, yes, I remember did seeing he, a girl... Did, did
2: he create
0: Matter Eater Lad?
2: I believe he did.
1: Now, let me ask you this, you guys. When it comes to Matter Eater Lad... You talked about his acids dissolving the material as it goes in. But at what point in his GI tract does this acid start? The acid's in his stomach, right? It's not in his esophagus, is it? So if it's in his stomach, then I argue that he deep-throated everything. (laughs) Isn't it funny,
0: Alex? You can tell Jim is seeing stuff to refute everything I've said Bill Bill or Bob? I take exception. Bill or Bob? who <laughs> created a, no. Very simple. Created oh um, Matter Eater. Oh my god, the creator of Superman created Matter Eater. Oh my god, that's amazing. The creator of
1: Funny Man you mean?
0: Yes. yes I was yes, going to yes. say it's not Funny like he man. has created some other things. No, I know Yeah, yeah. But Superman kind of overshadows everything. So that Well, it's like the basis of our entire industry, but I'm just saying, the superhero end of it anyway.
1: Yeah, I will say that there is something to be said about creating that good thing so early. That's Jerry Siegel's story. It was hard to beat that. Once he left Superman, it's almost like when Orson Welles created Citizen Kane, it was almost like he had nowhere to go but down after that, because that was the masterpiece and he was 26. And then when you look at his later stuff, you're like, "The hell is this?" There's a big bison head on the wall. I'm supposed to be impressed? No, 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 no. I'm, that's so incredibly wrong.
2: Orson Welles was making great, great films for for like a year, decades after that. They just didn't get distributed as as much. But Chimes Chimes of Midnight, his his fall staff, is is brilliant. There's some really and in his great noir film that he did with Charlton Heston. No, he did uh, F is for Fake. I, I could go on and on. He did some some really quality stuff for decades after that. He wasn't just hawking uh,
1: cheap wine and doing Dar- Dean Martin Rose. What about the bison? What about the bison head though? I wasn't impressed.
0: I don't know about the bison head, but I will say this: The Third Man ruined zither music for me forever because it was oh my god there's zither music oh, i can't even say zither there's zither music throughout the entire movie and it ruined the movie for me but it's one of his best i loved uh, oh uh, oh i see you it you guys dropped, are just oh, trying to drive you crazy jim's here are you, so, are you serious? Yeah, we're, trying, we're trying to drive you crazy jim
1: jim's kryptonite is attacking him with wrong genre declarations the intensity to correct is strong with this one
0: That is (laughs) true. When I grew up, there was this stupid commercial, and I know Jim remembers it well, and it was this, it was for Calgonite dishwasher. So this guy came on and he goes, I am the spot maker. I live in your dishwasher, spotting and seeking glasses and dishes. Do I embarrass you? And I think it's going along the same tack there, Jim. I just wanted to say that. No, Bill. I think I think we got a good division here. You
2: you deal with calgonite. I'll deal with Orson Wells, and we'll be fine.
0: Calgonite, Orsonite, <laughs> and, and we 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 have each other's backs.
1: We all have a part to play in the grand tapestry, ladies and gentlemen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> On that, note, we go to our weekly rants with Jim Thompson heading them up. Jim, go ahead, buddy.
2: I found the most amazing piece today that was by Ernie Cohen did the art and you guys tell me if you've ever seen it from National Lampoon where it's William Gaines as Citizen Kane and it's his last word instead of Rosebud is satire and it goes to all the Marvel staff and they're all like we don't know what that word means. And it's hilarious, and it's it's so such a a vicious attack on Mad Magazine about not being funny by National Lampoon. And I'm going to post it on Comic Book Historians. But it's it's have you guys ever seen it?
0: No, I've never have, and I want to see it right now. So I'll look it up as soon as we get off. And they're
2: throw at the end of it. I'm going to give away the joke at the end of it. It shows throwing throwing away the thing where it rosebud only in the sled, only instead of that it's satire. But it's really not satire. It's US USA tire. <laughs> oh, God. It that's hilarious.
1: Up that's, that's pretty smart. But it, it while Citizen it
2: is in
0: it, it's really, really fascinating. Was it Citizen Is that the Was name that? Citizen Gaines? Yeah. Oh, that's great. I have to go look that up. I learned so much from you guys. Okay, Alex, what's
1: your rant? I think my rant is kind of a short one on Frederick Wortham.
0: Yeah, well, no, my, my, my grandmother actually debated him once.
1: Did that really happen?
0: Yes, it really did. And my grandmother was a teacher who believed in comic books as a way for kids to learn to read and she felt like Wortham was a villain to that and really took away a medium that kids could have learned much more about the reading process. He backed down because my grandmother was kind of hardcore, and she was serious, and he said, well, I never took into account the reading provisions. And I don't know what he meant by provisions, but that's what she always told me. So, yeah, go ahead.
1: So my thing on Wortham is, I agree. In the 1950s, he got carried away with the anti-comic stuff. And whether he was a true trigger of the Comics Code forming or whether Senate was going to try to crack down on the Mafia and its role in comic book distribution or whatever happened there that... Was the true trigger, I'm not sure, but I know Wortham, we always talk about it, and his butting heads with the way Bill Gaines looked at comics at the time, and that whole setup of Gaines as the fallen hero and Wortham as this villain Darth Vader that just kind of ruined comics for everybody. I think that there are other factors at play. I think that there was the Congress going after organized crime at the time, and that kind of got involved in some of that. And then the industry, like Archie's president, with John Goldwater, was against Bill Gaines personally. And although Bill Gaines did come upon this idea of we should all just censor ourselves so the government doesn't do it for us, I think John Goldwater took that as an opportunity to create the comics code with the DC guys to almost make it unfair for Gaines, who was able to get it with all this copyright infringement the way they saw it, uh, because he kept lampooning those guys like Super Duper Man and the Archie, the Starchy or whatever it was, that I think they just really wanted to take Gaines out. And I think Wortham became like this figurehead evil when I think there are other BS things going on at the time, and I think Wortham, in some small way, may have been painted a little unfairly, and when I take into account, looking at his book from the 1930s, The Brain is an Organ in that textbook, I read his fanzine book the other day that he made in 1970, and I looked at some contributions he made, he did some psychiatric studies that they used in the Brown versus Board of Education trial, and he was an expert witness in New York for a long time for crazy murderers, I feel like we, in almost a haste, have painted him as this evil ultimate villain when I feel like that's a bit of an over-exaggeration. Although the verdict may still say what he said at the time in Seduction of the Innocent was still wrong and all we're doing is adding background information, I still feel like we should know as much of that background information before making our final judgments. And that's my rant.
0: I like that, and I do want to add, I do believe he was the Reaper Madness to comics of what Reaper Madness was to marijuana in the 30s because he he raised an alarm that I'm not so sure needed to be raised. I will take exception. I, I actually didn't mean to say it like that. but oh my God, I love that, Jim.
2: If you look at E.C.'s, and some of it goes a bit too far, but it's within a range, but some of the other books... They are outrageous. I mean, they really are. And it was going to happen whether Wortham existed or not. Uh, it was bound to get targeted because those, those books were crazy, uh, uh morbid and twisted and, and ghoulish. On a, on a level that I don't think we under, we appreciate because we, we look at the EC stuff and say, what are you talking about? It's dealing with racism and, and Jews moving in your neighborhood and cross burnings and what's wrong with, you know, commenting on that? That's not what some of these books were doing. That some of them were
1: really, really sadistic. That's right. That, the crime doesn't pay book with Charles Bureau those stories were pretty sick. There was some true violence going on. Again, there was the famous picture of the girl getting stabbed in the eye or whatever, but one of those guys, of those two guys who made that book, he actually ended up killing a woman later and she was found dead in his room and the cops got involved and he was like all shaken up, like, I just killed this lady to a cab driver. And then the cab driver tells the cops and they arrest him. And then he must have made some bad deals in prison because when he got out, some people found him and uh, killed him and left him on the side of the road dead. So there was some truly disturbed stuff that, as a parent, I feel like I wouldn't want my kid, my five-year-old kid, buying some chewing gum and reading this stuff. I think that, in some sense, the comic companies needed some degree of conscience, and although there was probably an overreaction, I will say that would Spider-Man have existed without the comics code? Would the Avengers have existed without the comics code? And I don't think so. I think it's always easier to appeal to the least common denominator for the most money. I feel like in some sense, although when you look at comics written before and after the code, the writing quality was reduced, but I will say though that in some sense it was better for children reading comics at the time. I don't think it was taken as a serious adult visual art literary art form at the time. It just wasn't.
2: Well, no, that's, I don't know. Joe Manili was sure, I mean, um, uh, not Manili, um, uh Craigstein was
1: certainly taking it as a serious art form at the time. Yeah, that's true, totally. And there were some easy stories that were really quite amazing, so I agree. But in some sense, then it should say maybe 16 and older or something on the cover, but they weren't saying that, right? And then that was mixed in with all the other gross kind of sadistic stuff
2: well the kurtzman books i mean they were clearly not designed for for kids the war books you know i mean those stories were designed for adults overseas uh it was, it was for 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 young people thinking about war those were not those were not for 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 10 year
1: olds so so i guess it's, it's and i think kurtzman's career would show that he was very well intentioned with that because even after EC fell apart and he was at MAD, then he went and did Humbug and Help. These were, in his mind, he felt like he was doing good work for a good cause, and he was in that for a while. It didn't pay as well, so eventually, after a few failures, he just went and did Little Annie Fanny, but that was more out of necessity. In his mind, though, from the early 50s through a lot of the 60s, In his mind, he was actually writing for a good cause and for noble reasons and putting a lot of seriousness into his expression. And I feel like that was an unfair thing for them to have taken away from comics, from the comics code. And so, again, it wasn't perfect. The reaction to what was going on wasn't perfect.
2: The, the saddest thing about it, Alex, for me, is it destroyed genre diversification. What happened was you had superheroes and and yes, you got Spider man in a way that you wouldn't have gotten before, but what you lost was all of the other uh, uh genre experimentation that um that European comics that manga got it, we We really have lagged behind. Um and, and we've caught up uh, to some degree, but look how much more sophisticated European comics were and, and to some degree are to this day uh, compared to American comics. And it's because we got sent to nursery school, because uh, do we really want to market it with your five-year-old in mind or my four-year-old? It's, I, you know, again, Kurtzman didn't, Wally Wood didn't with uh, Wits End and, and things, but those things couldn't get
0: on the stands because of the comics code. My answer to that is, thank God that happened because Mobius, not Morbius, but Mobius would never have happened if that had not happened. I mean, Mobius is by far my favorite comic artist of all time, Jean Girard, And uh, I met him. I had dinner with him once. Wonderful guy. And I've had dinner with a lot of my, my comic book heroes, thank God. Jack Kirby. Will Eisner, a lot of people that have come and gone, Peter David, Dave Sim, and I've been a very fortunate guy because I'm such a freaking fanboy. I can't even talk, but here's my rant. My rant is about, because it's Halloween, thank God, or thank not God, <laughs> <or> whatever <laughs> you believe God that. loves Halloween. Dude. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it's it's all Halloween. Eve. Come on. But, uh, My my rant is on The Living Ghost. Have you guys... Either one of you guys ever heard of The Living Ghost? No. Okay. Well, I'm glad you said that, because The Living Ghost was an ACG character from Adventures into the Unknown, 1948. He's considered one of the very first horror characters, and he's considered the first horror character to get his own series. And he was basically... Satan's best or Lucifer's best friend and they both fell to earth at the same time and he took over and on earth and Satan took over in hell and every hundred years he came back to wreak havoc on humanity because what God did to him it's wonderful the guy who wrote it originally was Lovecraft's best friend and it's considered to uh, have some of the best horror moments of all time in comics in his first appearance. So, I want everybody... My, I'm ranting because it's so good and so bad and evil at the same time, and that's kind of halloween don't you think? Yes, it is. Yes. So, I hope you guys both go look at it, and I hope everybody else listening goes and looks up the living ghost. He had two appearances, but he really did have an impact on horror comics, and he probably had an impact on Mike Plug, I'm thinking, because a lot of the elements in it are very plugish. If I is, is that even a word? It is now. Plugish.
2: Oh yeah, no. I use it all the time. Do you really? Plugish.
0: Yeah. But uh, <laughs> it's an objection
2: actually. Objection. Plugish,
1: Your Honor. Yeah, please. Plugish, Your Honor. Uh,
2: yeah.
1: I want the people at home to know that we can all see each other on Skype and just to help add to the effect of what Bill said from his very heartful rant, he's wearing a mask made out of another person's skin right now. And so just kind of imagine that if you end up replaying this.
0: And, you know, Mamma was totally complicit with this. She said, I could, never mind, never mind. God, Alex, why do you take me down that road every time? Oh, my God, I fall into it. Folks, we want to thank you for joining us this week on our Halloween rant, as it were, as an entire episode. But uh, <laughs> we, we want you to have a wonderful All Hallows' Eve with your kids, your grandkids, your soon-to-be kids. I don't know. But we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being here for the Comic Book Historians podcast. And we will see you next week with Lord knows what, but we'll find out then. Good night, Paul.